This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 82 is, what makes a theory scientific? And we read Karl Popper's Conjectures and Refutations from 1963, the introduction in chapters 1 and 2. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer unfalsifiably speaking from Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> this is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey demarcating in Middleton, Wisconsin. Ah, good one. Let's read the ground rules for our discussion. They include, number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say... You don't understand me if only you had read that little-known exotic cookbook Papa wrote called, of course, anybody guess? How to Pop Popcorn. That's good. Any other guesses? Exotic cookbook. Exotic cookbook? Mr. Popper's Popper's Penguins. But you're going to say the the open face sandwich and its enemies. (laughs) That is much better. (laughs) Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say unless doing otherwise would be potentially more amusing. All right. Once again, we have a straightforward summary of the readings already posted this time by Mr. Dylan Casey telling us what these three things are about, but that's not necessarily required for people that don't want to just sit there and listen to one person for 10 whole minutes. But if you want something uh, that's not half-assed, you might want to go there first. (laughs) You could listen on double speed for just five minutes. Triple speed. You can also get the intravenous feed, uh, which we <laughs> will ship to you for $20. <laughs> oh, my. No listening or reading necessary. <laughs> well, if we got Popper that way, we would not get his acerbic wit, his many self-references. Curmudgeonliness. Smooth curmudgeonliness, yes. And this book, which is rather fat, you just read the beginning of because... They're really all different essays. There were different lectures given at different places. And it is 1963. When did he die? He died in 1994. (laughs) Well, compared to his heyday, which was, he says, yeah, I came up with this thing in the 20s. I didn't publish it then, but, but then he did publish in the early 30s, his most famous books. But those are more difficult. And so instead of just republishing his Logic of Scientific Discovery, which is his big book from back in the day, He wrote this Conjectures and Refutations, or put this together from various lecture notes and things, as a way to update, to respond to all the criticisms, to uh, show that he was the one that thought of this first and stood the test of time. And the thing in particular is his theory of what science is. A scientific theory, you can tell that it is potentially falsifiable. That's his big theory. He calls it his theory of demarcation, right? That is to demark the difference between science and pseudoscience. And he doesn't say right out that all philosophy is pseudoscience or anything like that. He has, has many later things to say about that. But in his Conjectures and Refutations article, chapter one in this, we read the introduction as well, which is very extensive. It's his own lecture in itself, with a lot of history in it. 
it made sense to me that he would be approaching it in this way because at the time, the whole fight over empiricism and logical positivism is going on and he's in the middle of that. And at some level, it's all part of the whole story of trying to talk about what science is and what it does, where science in this case is a kind of um, placeholder for what can we know for sure? That's Kant. That's all kinds of people throughout history, you know? Where are we going to put knowledge and put what we can say about the world and make it so that we can know it for sure? And to me, that was a straightforward reason why he's working on this problem of demarcation and, and coming up with a solution that amounts to saying what science is and why it's such a compelling problem for him. Right. He saw the two main problems of epistemology. He had an early work, I think, unpublished that he talks about as the two big problems in epistemology, one of which is the problem of demarcation, the other which is the problem of induction. He ultimately thinks those are very closely related. And the answer to them is the same thing. Yes, which is this falsifiability criterion, which just to give an example, he was reacting, for instance, to Sigmund Freud. And in fact, he worked briefly for Adler, one of Freud's disciples that had a big following of his own. And he thought that you could give a psychoanalytic explanation for anything. And people saw that as a strength of psychoanalysis, that you could just look at any particular behavior and give a Freudian explanation for what this is. But he actually saw that as a weakness, because if it's something is actually a science, it's not just a language that you can interpret. It's not just a point of view from which you can interpret anything you see. It has to actually make predictions about people's behavior in this case, that then if those predictions turn out to be wrong, you would say, oh, I guess the theory is wrong. But in practice, Freud and Adler and presumably Jung and anybody else following that tradition, that wasn't the case. What did you think of that assessment of Freud, Wes? Well, I think it's important to bear in mind that he's not saying these things aren't useful. It's just strictly speaking, mm -hmm. they're not a science in the sense of a predictive empirical science. And of course, there is no predictive empirical science of human behavior. It's too complex a system. But I think strictly speaking, you can make a case that psychoanalysis isn't a science. Of course, we'll see that this criterion of falsifiability, just like verificationism, it's open to its own sorts of objections. And there will be people who come along and say, well, actually, you're ruling out things which are activities that constitute science with this criterion, and you're ruling in things that don't count as science. So I think there's a potential to look at this concept of science more broadly, in which case it used to be that Literary criticism was also considered in the broad sense of science. And like psychoanalysis, literary criticism is involved in the activity of interpretation. So, for instance, say you're reading Antigone and someone comes along and says that Creon has a sort of tragic flaw of pride, let's say. And one could say, well, that interpretation is not really testable. You can certainly measure it against the text. But Popper would object to that and say, well, you could take any data in the text and make it fit your theory. There's no way to come up with an experiment to try and refute your theory concerning Creon's pride. I can't prod Creon. I can't perform an experiment on him. But that's not to say that that type of interpretation isn't a useful sort of thing. And I don't think Popper, from what I understand, he made lots of caveats about this. He's not trying to say that literary criticism and things like psychoanalysis are entirely useless. I just think by his... No. His standard of what constitutes an empirical science, they're not going to be up to snuff. Based on his falsifiability criterion, I think he's right. But of course, I think the extent to which falsifiability is going to work as a demarcation is something that's open to question. And we'll be reading people after Popper who offer criticisms of this. So that's my general take on that. I think he has a good point there if we keep in mind that he's not saying these 
activities are useless. And if we also keep in mind this demarcation of what's scientific and not scientific is actually still quite problematic. So I think we ought to um, take Popper at his word in that part of this essay, he says, you can't really understand a philosopher without understanding their problem situation, specifically like what they were trying to solve and why they were motivated by what they were motivated by. It's kind of his argument against <laughs> strictly textual analyses, I guess. But without going into a tremendous amount of detail, Popper was around and aware of, as you said, Freud and Adler and other intellectual movements that were happening turn of the century and shortly thereafter on the continent. And he was in Austria. He fled Austria out of fear of the Nazis and then sort of became embroiled in conversations with the logical positivists about verificationism. So to kind of frame this, Popper was scientifically minded. He valued the scientific method. But then he saw Wittgenstein and the logical positivists who were saying anything that couldn't be verified or that couldn't be expressed in terms of propositions that could be validated somehow by experience, that it was just nonsense. And given his background with Freud, with Adler, and some social, I think, Marx. justice, social works that he did, and Marx, yes, he wanted to say, look, having a conversation about those things, they're not meaningless, they're not scientific in the same sense. They're different, but there's still value in discussing them and in thinking through them. So a big part of his motivation, I think, was to try to find a way to characterize the difference between scientific theories and scientific method and then philosophical theories or psychological theories and methods that are appropriate to them in order to be able to say that it was worthwhile paying attention to those things that were not scientific. And that was directly in response to what was happening with the Wittgensteinian-inspired logical positivists. Now, there's another thread as well. He calls that type of logical positivism. And for anybody who doesn't know, logical positivism is just a theory that essentially says that any proposition about the world has to be verifiable in some way through our experience or reason. And if it's not, then... It's not meaningful. It's not meaningful. It has no meaning. So you can go back and listen to our Wittgenstein and Carnap episodes if you want to get, learn more about that. Or, or the Ayn Rand episode, frankly. That's exactly the same view. Sure. Any of those will we'll give you a picture of that. Popper calls that optimistic epistemology or epistemological optimism, which is that there is something that we can know and that there's this ironclad concrete way of getting at it. And he contrasts that with epistemological skepticism, which is we can't know anything or we'll never know anything. Skepticism or pessimism? I'm sorry, pessimism, yes. He thinks that both of those are extremes along a continuum that ultimately justify certain kinds of, I'll call them political stances vis-a-vis -vis other people or vis-a-vis -vis societies. And that in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, part of his agenda, I should say, is to try to put forth a point of view about the way science progresses, about the value of philosophy that encourages us not to think in terms of absolutes with respect to knowledge, absolute foundations, or absolutist systems of epistemology, because he thinks they contribute to a viewpoint that can lead to totalitarianism. He was friends with F.A. Hayek, who wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom, which is roughly about that same topic. And Hayek also wrote a work on the nature of scientific inquiry and scientific knowledge versus 
knowledge of the social sciences, as he called it, which in his case meant economics. Part of this is that he sees a anti-authoritarian stance in certain people like Descartes and other epistemological optimists because they're generally reacting against some kind of authoritarian or totalitarian regime at the time. And so by pointing to science, they point to a, you know, he would put Bacon in this group as well, point to a way to show that the conclusions and worldview and ways of reasoning characteristic of these authoritarian and totalitarian regimes is deeply flawed and that it's accessible to everybody that you can see that is deeply flawed. And they go about showing that. And so that version of epistemological optimism in the early hands of Bacon and Descartes become a kind of foundation of liberalism. But Popper then sees that at the end of the day, that stance for him, can't take you anywhere but to a new kind of authoritarianism and a new kind of totalitarianism. So it loses its anti-authoritarian edge in the end because it ends up just substituting one authority for another of the same sort. He just basically you know, says, look, at the end of the day, Descartes and Bacon, their version of induction, and he goes back to Socrates, says, all of these are the same and they all end up just substituting one kind of divine criteria for another. The one place where you would might escape it a little bit is in early dialogues of Plato with Socrates sort of being a more openly ranging intellect as opposed to the Plato and Socrates of the Republic, where the concern is that only certain sorts of people can see what's really going on. Right. So what we're getting into here is the introduction to this book. The essay is called On the Sources of Knowledge and Ignorance, pretty much a speech from 1960. And I don't want us to give a confusing uh, account here. I'm just unsure to what extent bringing it into the political realm is post hoc or metaphorical or I think it's at, absolutely least, fundamental. at least unnecessary. No, it's um, absolutely fundamental. The order in which he came up with this stuff. So he wrote The Logic of Scientific Discovery, which is where the falsifiability stuff at least was first published in a major work in 1934. And that was when he was in Vienna. And then it wasn't until he, he left in fear of the Nazis and was living in uh, New Zealand for a little while that he wrote The Open Society and Its Enemies in 1945. So that's when he really comes up with this theory that, you know, who knows what order they came in, a popper scholar, certainly. The thesis of the Open Society and Its Enemies is that in parallel to this falsifiability view of scientific theories, that the progress of science is you come up with theories and you try to make them very specific and you then attempt to falsify them. The more you can replace them and improve them, the better things are going. So the, the idea is not to establish once and for all a canon of truth that that is just entirely against the scientific spirit. So the Open Society and its enemies says basically the same thing like that for societies, that what makes it an open society is that anybody can come in and criticize, and the criticism gets listened to and actually improves things. So even though he was a liberal of sorts, and there were other liberals that were much more in favor of social planning, let's come up with what's the best kind of society and what is the way that we can get there most efficiently and then let's follow that. And he was entirely against that. He was more what we in the U.S. would consider conservative way of progressing because it's a matter of don't let people in power screw things up too much. <laughs> let them take baby steps here and there, and then we'll see if those work, and then they can go a little further. And if anytime something's not working, we can shut it down. Like that, the emphasis is on getting bad people out of power because no matter what kind of government you have, you're going to get somebody incompetent at the head of it at some point. 
So then by this time, by the book that we're reading Conjectures and Refutations, those things are all definitely rolled together here. But I think that you could interpret that first essay on the sources of knowledge and ignorance on a sort of more metaphorical basis in that he's not actually saying that a Cartesian is going to end up being a monarchist or end up being a tyrant or a Cartesian is going to support tyranny. Like, of course, intellectuals of any stripe are often very divorced from the political machinery. And it's sort of another thesis altogether beyond this stuff about science specifically or about epistemology specifically to say that societies have an ideology and can be informed by these things. And so having the correct epistemological theory will lead to, will be a foundation to the best kind of society. I don't think he even says that straight out in this essay. The tie-in for this first essay is not those kinds of details, and so maybe it is metaphorical in some respect, but the tie-in is with the notion of what stands as the authority. Mm -hmm. The path that he sees Bacon and Descartes and other forms as leading to authoritarianism in the end is that they trump the authority of their predecessors. And so they claim that now you can know what the truth is. For Popper, this is the problem of every justification for science and every claim for knowledge all along the whole way, is that it's not that they're not useful and don't have their important points, but at the end of the day, they are all fighting about who trumps who. Or which faculty within the mind is the ultimate source of knowledge. Well, any of those things, those are all lumped together, right? It's a process of calling away and focusing in and picking out which piece, you know, is it the mind? Is it the intellect? Is it intuitive? Is it rational? Is it experience? What piece are you going to hold on to that gives you knowledge that you know is absolutely true? That's the short version of his summary of basically intellectual history, is, mm -hmm. is that fight. Just to finish the metaphor, which I think is a brilliant metaphor, that he says people throughout the history of political philosophy have asked the question, who should rule? Should it be the rich? Should it be the smart? Should it be the many? And he thinks that's the wrong question. The right question is, how do you have a government structured so that whoever is in power, if they're incompetent or evil, then you can get them out of power as quickly as possible or make them do as little damage as possible? And so in parallel with that, in science, whether it's the rationalists arguing that reason is the ultimate grounding of all knowledge or the empiricists. No, it's the description of these immediate experiences that are the source of all knowledge, that are the ultimate grounding or the ultimate justification. He thinks that both of those, likewise, are asking the wrong question, which is, you know, what is the faculty that is the grounding of all knowledge? That he thinks that that's the wrong question. What would the right question be there? What is the best method for correction, for critique? There you go. Right. Because you always start from the dogmatic standpoint. So science begins with myths, for instance. He says, this is at okay. the end of the summary on page 34. So rather than the question of how can we be sure we're right, the question is how can we hope to detect and eliminate error? That's the way he explicitly formulates right. it. Right. Right. What section was that? Section 15. The link with political theory is earlier on that Mark summarized, that these questions of legitimacy and authority are clearly authoritarian spirit. They can be compared with the traditional question of political theory, who should rule, which begs for an authoritarian answer such as the best or the wisest or the people or the majority. And he goes on at the end, he says, I believe that only by changing our question to how can we organize our political institutions so that 
bad or incompetent rulers cannot do too much damage. Then he continues and draws the parallel with science. The questions about the sources of our knowledge can be replaced in a similar way. It has always been asked in the spirit of, what are the best sources of our knowledge, the most reliable ones, those which will not lead us into error, those which we can and must turn in case of doubt as the last quarter of appeal? I propose to assume instead that no such ideal sources exist, no more than ideal rulers, and that all sources, sources in quotes, are liable to lead us into error at times, and I propose to replace, therefore, the question of the sources of our knowledge by the entirely different question, how can we hope to detect and eliminate error? Mm, yeah. He's taking a different tack on the way, for instance, Descartes does in metaphysics, which is Descartes says, I'm going to peel away everything about the world and just go back and go back and go back until I find the one thing that I'm certain of. I think Popper would say that Descartes' solution is very revealing in that Descartes ends up not being able to doubt God and then comes up with, I think, therefore I exist, and so forth and so on. And it has a kind of rationalism that pairs up with Bacon's empirical measurement. And that underneath all of these is the question of certainty. How can I be absolutely certain? How can I be confident in my conclusions? Someone like Descartes obsessed with this, and that's why, for instance, he turns to mathematical knowledge as being the paragon for this as the way to know that we know things for sure. Popper thinks that that is just not the right tack, and that's a misreading of the way we actually know things. In the end, he has a kind of evolutionary account for the way we end up knowing things. Yeah, that's a great point, Dylan, to tie this back to the idea of epistemic optimism in the verificationist sense. His argument against the desire to find sources, as it were, is that it ultimately becomes an appeal to authority. Which seems funny, like that I'm appealing to the authority of my own senses. So there's something metaphorical about that. I mean, the main point, though, is that it just doesn't work, right? It doesn't work to try <laughs> yes. and yeah. right. say that all statements must be reducible to observation statements and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That project failed. Yeah. And he talks about the empiricist and the rationalist. You know, he's saying if you're making an appeal to reason, ultimately, you're going to end up at some kind of an authority statement also, which is maybe more explicitly an authority statement. His arguments against the verificationist slash empiricist are pretty strong. Let's say a little more about verificationism before we talk more about Hume and empiricism itself and the problem of induction. He talks about Wittgenstein as his nemesis. <laughs> and I know that there are a lot of Wittgenstein defenders and would disagree with the characterization that Wittgenstein said that anything that's not reducible to observation statements ultimately is meaningless that Wittgenstein still had a theology, that even though there's something unsayable about these things, still maybe the most important part of philosophy is buried in that part that you can't say. But in any case, those subtleties were lost on the logical positivists mm -hmm. who Wittgenstein himself was a little disgusted by, apparently. But the ones who found Wittgenstein's Tractatus and called it their Bible... So you could even just forget about this as a piece of Wittgenstein scholarship. But interestingly, there's a comment in here somewhere where Popper talks about meeting up with Wittgenstein on multiple occasions, I guess. So we even identify the later Wittgenstein who wrote the Philosophical Investigations as being very different than the Wittgenstein of the Tractatus. But Popper says that still this overarching take that philosophy is meaningless is something that persisted in those later years in Wittgenstein as well. So that's Popper speaking firsthand as somebody that 
discussed philosophy with Wittgenstein. So maybe that's something worth listening to. I don't know. <laughs> that interpretation sounded not too far off the mark, actually, that the Wittgenstein and the philosophical investigations, while you might find appealing some of the mysticism and stuff like that, a lot of it is against any kind of certainty at all in what we say and any kind of knowing. And the criticism that Popper would have is that you're just obsessed with the wrong thing. That, of course, you're not going to have the certainty that you're talking about. That that's just the wrong question. And you are just following your way down a rabbit hole that, of course, is going to end in disillusionment, a pit of despair, because you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> right. He refers to the frustrated epistemological optimists. Yeah. But we were talking about the failure of verificationism. Well, I had always heard about Popper as part of that same club, that he had a, his own version that it's not verification, it's falsifiability. But he explicitly in here, in one essay that we didn't read, really goes like step by step contrasting his view with Carnap's over the period of 30 years or something. So he really wants to distinguish that his falsifiability criterion is just to, again, demarcate the line between science and pseudoscience. It's not between meaning and meaninglessness. He's right. not interested in the... Even though that's the way the positivists took that criticism. Yes. He's kind of proud that that disrupted their, their whole thing, and they worried a lot about that. But they, yeah, he does say that they were confused in the sense that they took his theory to be a, a demarcation between meaningful and not meaningful, but it wasn't. They run all of that together, right? The line between meaningful and not meaningful and scientific and not scientific is the same thing for the verificationist. Sure. Yeah, and that's because they're asking the wrong question from Popper's point of view. They're asking what the meaning of something is. Asking what its meaning is for Popper would be the same thing as asking whether you're right or not. Asking what you can be certain about. Asking what you can verify. Right. Well, and he gives a kind of a little history of this as being sourced in Russell's theory of types that we've talked about before, which was a way of preventing the Barber's paradox. So the question is, if you talk about something like the set of all sets that don't have themselves as a member, then just the existence of that causes a, a paradox. So the way that Russell got rid of that is by saying, look, there are different kinds of things. There are first order objects, and then there are sets. And so they're a predicate that applies to a first order object, like an individual table, does not apply to set of tables. So he's just syntactically ruling out the things that would cause the paradox. Well, according to Popper, this was the source of this idea that you could have something that is, it sounds meaningful, but it's just syntactically ruled out if you understand the logical categories of the things in your language. And so the positivists were just generalizing this to a whole lot of things. And in our episode on Carnap's Aufbau project, that really was an attempt to, well, let's start with these raw experiences and then group them into sets and group those into sets. And so you have these different levels of entities. I'm looking at section three of the first chapter, Conjectures and Refutation. So quoting here, for Wittgenstein's criteria of debarnication, to use my own terminology in this context, is verifiability or deducibility from observation statements. But this criterion is too narrow and too wide. It excludes from science practically everything that is, in fact, characteristic of it by failing to exclude astrology. No scientific theory can ever be deduced from observation statements or be described as a true function of observation statements. Now, he doesn't argue at length here against that in this chapter. But some of this has to do with the idea that 
any given observation statement is impure. There's no just pure empirical observation that isn't itself theory-laden, right? This idea that observations are theory-laden, and we've used that a lot over the few years we've done this podcast, that, that's a Popperian idea. That's an idea that he popularized. Can we thresh that out? So if I want to say, you know, there's a book here in front of me, how could one even doubt that? That is just so obvious. That's a basic observation statement. How is that theory-laden? It's theory-laden in the sense that a book is a concept that you have to come to the world with even to be able to identify something as a book, right? You would never, in the rawest, you know, think of Hegelian sense certainty or an mm -hmm. infant. You would never simply come to the world if you didn't have that concept and be able to make that kind of statement. And so, of course, as we saw with Wittgenstein and people like Carnap, they give us an idea, well, all of that is ultimately reducible, right, to some very simple statements, like there's a pixel of red here at this coordinate. They want to make it as simple as possible. But no matter how simple you make it, arguably anything that you call an observation statement is already so conceptual and complex enough. Anything that we can even talk about, if we're talking about it, it's already linguistic. It's already conceptual. It's already at a level of complexity where... It's kind of silly to call this simply a pure observation. He would go all the way to saying that we come at the world with a set of expectations that are natural to us, that are part of our physical makeup, part of our wiring. Yeah. So that might get tuned and adjusted by our living experience and by the fact that we can make concepts and that we can make decisions and distinctions based upon concepts and all that sort of thing. But even absent language, absent anything, the whole world and the notion of a primary experience is false because it's always constrained and fed through something. And th that's not a problem. That's just true. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.